Great. Well, uh, good morning again. Let's pray uh, just as we come to God's words. Father, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Uh, We truly believe that. Please, Father, would you help us as we look at perhaps uh, what initially may be unfamiliar material for us. Yet, please, Father, would you uh, teach us wonderful things from your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of our lives are controlled by our diaries, aren't they? I guess in this uh, electronic age, one of the wonderful things is whatever you put in your diary last year you know, carries forward into this year often. But if you are still in the paper days, you know, when you get that, your brand new diary at the beginning of the year, you get it out, and what do you stick in it? I, know, I guess for, for us, you, know, you put in the school holidays, and then birthdays, don't forget them, and then some of perhaps the other big markers of the year as they go through. We, we put things in there which uh, fix the pattern for our years, the flow of what things are to come. And God's people in the Old Testament were governed by a yearly cycle of seven annual festivals. Seven annual festivals. And we are going to spend one week looking at each of these festivals. And funnily enough, I can't sense the excitement fizzing off you. No? Woohoo! Ray gave it a good build up, doesn't he? Didn't he? No holidays for me coming up. Hard passages. But it's a valid question. For me, you're happy to ask that. What relevance does this have to us? And particularly, actually, when we know that modern day Jews don't actually even celebrate these festivals as they're prescribed in Leviticus 23. What relevance could it have for us, Christians, thousands of years after it was written? Well, firstly, in one sense, it it does provide us some helpful information about what life was like for the Jews. And we see that this was really important to God. If you've got Leviticus 23 there, just just glance down. Look at verse 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. And again, he stresses it, just glance to verse 4. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. These are the Lord's feasts, the Lord's festivals. He instituted them for his people. And this is law, law for the the Jews. Year after year, they were to observe these feasts. They're described in a couple of ways there. You saw that feast is one. Holy convocations, that's not a word that we use very much, is it? It means assembly, a gathering. These were times when the people of God would gather together and to remember the Lord, his work, and to worship him. As we say, okay, fair enough for them there, but how about us? Well, yes, it might provide us some interesting information, but far more than that, these festivals are going to teach us about Jesus. Paul writes, the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians uh, later on, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question. Uh, sorry, I can't actually see. 
questions of food and drink, or with regards to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. And here's the important thing. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So these festivals, these feasts, Paul describes actually as a shadow where the substance, the reality, is Jesus. Now, if you came across this scene, you came across this in a park or something, you saw it, what would you be looking at? Well, your focus would not be on the shadow on the back wall. You might look at it and go, oh, that's quite an interesting shadow. No, your focus, quite rightly, is going to be on the statue in front of you. And in that sense, Paul says, as important as these festivals were for God's people, Yet they ultimately find their fulfilment, their reality, their substance in Jesus. Now, if you want some proof of that, read through John's Gospel this afternoon. As you read through, about 20 times Jesus is specifically mentioned as doing something at a specific festival. John the writer, as all the Gospels do, but John particularly, draws our attention to this. And that's why we've called this series Festivals and Fulfillments. So if you want to know what our plan is, really each time we're going to jump through some steps. First off, we want to see what the festival, where the festival came from. How did it originate? And then we're going to see, well, why was it so important for God's people to celebrate it and remember it year after year? But then importantly, we're going to go and see, well, how does this find its fulfillment in Jesus and his work? And then last of all, we're going to then think, well, what significance does that festival have for us today? Okay, we're going to go through those kind of steps each week. And I'm convinced as we do, we're going to see actually how wonderful these, how wonderful these things are in teaching us about Jesus and his work. Now, we find these seven festivals, feasts, prescribed in Leviticus 23. And they really come in two groupings. To kind of put up our our modern-day diary rather than the the Jewish calendar. Um, But they they mainly come in two bunches. Okay, so first off, kind of April time-ish, kind of around our Easter time, you've got the Passover. And as we see, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread are very much connected. We're going to look at them in two, but they, they come together. Literally, they come together. Then you've got the first fruits. A bit later on, uh, we get the first Feast of Weeks. And then the next batch come with the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. Now, Leviticus 23 is going to be our base camp. So here's my slight disclaimer. <coughs> We're not just going to be doing a sermon series on Leviticus. <laughs> We're going to use that as as our springboard to look elsewhere through the Old and New Testament as well. And none more so than today. Because just look at verse 5. The Passover gets one verse. Not much to go on. So let's have a look at it anyway. Verse 5. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month, at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. All we're told here is the timings. We see that it comes at the start of their year. And in fact, from Exodus, we see that this was why their year started now. The Passover marked the start of their year. And notice also the time, twilight, or literally from the footnote, between the evenings. Just store that one away for later. 
But as I said, verse 4, this is a, a feast, a time of celebration, a holy convocation, an assembly of getting together. The Passover. Okay, now come back to Exodus 12, and this is where we're going to remain for the rest of our time. Come back to Exodus 12. And so, the Passover. Have a look down at Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, in the land of Egypt. Okay, that sets the, the setting for us for the Passover. God's people were in Egypt. That wicked and cruel Pharaoh who increasingly oppressed God's people. God's people were there in slavery, in bondage, forced labour. And the people cried out to God, and God heard them. He heard them. And so he acted. He rose up Moses, who was going to deliver the people. And Moses and Aaron uh, uh, went to Pharaoh and said, look, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no, no, again and again. And so God sent nine plagues upon the people. Water turned to blood, frogs, gnats, flies, and so on. And yet still Pharaoh refused to let God's people go. And so in chapter 11 of Exodus, God threatened the, one la- the last and the worst plague, the death of the firstborn. Every firstborn in the land of Egypt would die. Human, animal. But even with this, Pharaoh still said, no. No. But here's the thing, again, though, is that this is going to be every firstborn in Egypt. So that's not just Egyptians, that means Israelites too. And so... Facing that prospect of the firstborn dying, God instituted the first Passover. And the solution was a lamb. The solution was a lamb. Have a look at verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And then from verse 4, we can see that this lamb was to be proportionate, as it were. So there was going to be, it had to be enough for each family. If, they didn't, couldn't, um, if the family wasn't big enough to have a whole lamb, they would join together with another family. Verse 5, we see the lamb was to be perfect, no blemishes. And then particularly, we see verse 6, this lamb was to be a sacrifice. They were going to kill this lamb. And this first Passover... Is all about two things. Firstly, it is all about ensuring the people were safe from judgment. The first Passover was seeing the people safe from judgment. See what the people were to do with this land. Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. So this lamb that they've killed, they were to take the blood with the the, the hyssop branch and to paint the blood on their door frames. And you see the purpose of this blood, verse 12, 
For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. You see, this plague, the death of the firstborn, was an act of God's judgment. Now, you might think that's a pretty severe judgment. Is that a bit much? Every single firstborn in the land? But no. You see, the punishment fits the crime. You see, Pharaoh had risen up against God. He hard-heartedly was ignoring him, not recognising God as God, rejecting him. And he showed that by rising up against God's people against God's firstborn. And so God's judgment for Pharaoh rising up against his firstborn was the death of the firstborn. Sorry to interrupt. It's cap, cap, is, it, is it closed? Sorry? Uh, yeah, it's fine. Sorry, we've had a problem with a bit of tech. And so God's judgment was the firstborn for a firstborn. But as we said, there was no distinction here in Egypt between the Egyptians and Israel. Unlike some of the other plagues earlier on, there was no discrimination between the Egyptians and the Israelites. And so they faced this danger too. And here's where it all comes together, verse 13. The blood that you painted on the door frames, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the lands of Egypt. You see, this lamb was the way to be safe from God's judgments. They would see the blood and would pass over those houses. The death of the lamb kept the people safe from God's judgments. Secondly, the Passover, that first Passover, was all about setting the people free from slavery. And we said that was a situation that God's people were in slavery, forced labour, day after day, trying to make uh, enough bricks to meet their quota. And then after a while, when Pharaoh got even more annoyed, they stopped being provided with the straw to bind it together, and so they had to work even harder to produce the same amounts Backbreaking work, their freedom gone, slavery. But the judgment on Egypt was the one that was finally going to convince Pharaoh to let the people go, to let them leave slavery. So do you see from verse 11 um, that the people were to eat this meal, Passover meal, ready to go? Verse 11, in this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. You see, the Passover was about getting ready to go. And sure enough, just after where we stopped our reading, but if you look down to verse 30, after this terrible judgment had happened, verse 30, and Pharaoh rose up in the night, and all his servants, and all the Egyptians... And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you 
and the people of Israel and go and serve the Lord as you have said. The people were free. The people were free. That first Passover was all about making the people safe from God's judgments and setting them free from slavery. And it all was focused around that lamb. That was the first Passover. How about the Passover's reality, the substance, to use Paul's language? Well, the Exodus itself was the highlight, it was the pinnacle of God's redeeming work in the Old Testament for the Jews. It was the greatest display of his steadfast love. And yet Paul can say, no, that was just the shadow, the reality, the substance is found in Jesus and his redeeming work. Just as God's people in Egypt were were facing God's judgments, and just as they were in slavery, well, it's the truth of the Bible that every single human being naturally, without his gracious intervention, is facing judgment and in slavery. The the Bible's word for for rising up against God, the the Bible's word for ignoring him and not honouring God as God, is sin. And Jesus warns that that day of eternal, uh, that that day when God, uh, when Jesus will come back the second time, and everyone will have to give an account for his life, and then um, uh, everyone everyone will have to give an account for, for their life and will be sent to one of two eternal destinies, life or judgment. And the punishment will fit the crime. And facing that reality is something that we we all must do. So every human being is naturally facing God's judgment. Secondly, every human being is naturally in slavery. You think, what? How's that work? Well, Jesus himself said, everyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. Slaves in the sense as we're facing that judgment, but also a slave in a sense under that power. And I think we'd all know that experience. You know, there's something that we don't want to do, and yet we, we try not to, and then we do it. There's something we really should do, we really try, but then we, we fail to do it. And so we all need that Passover lamb. We all need the reality. And in Jesus, Jesus, we have it. John the Baptist, the one who was going to prepare God's people for Jesus. What was it he said right there at the beginning of Jesus' earth ministry? Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Do you remember how that Lamb had to be perfect? Well, throughout his life, Jesus living in a perfect, imperfect obedience to his Father. Remember, again, at the beginning of Jesus' baptism, God the Father looks down from heaven and speaks and says, This is my Son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Right at the end of Jesus' life, on trial, was it Pilate three times declared Jesus to be innocent, to have done no wrong? The perfect one. Yet his blood spilt on a vertical and horizontal bits of woods. Jesus, as he hung on the cross, given a sponge of sour wine held up on a hyssop branch. 
But under that blood, his people are kept safe from his judgment. Judgment fell on God's firstborn, so that it would not fall on us. Now, if you're familiar with the Easter story, you'll know that, um, that the cross came at the time of the Passover. But what connection you might not have noticed before is exactly when that happened. You see, did you remember from Leviticus 23 when I just flagged it up just briefly? The Passover was to happen at twilight or between the evenings, which according to Jewish tradition was 3 p.m. Now, of course, when was Jesus on the cross? Well, the ninth hour at 3 p.m., he cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama selectani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the people, as the priests were preparing the Passover lamb in the temple in the city, Jesus hung on a cross outside the city walls. And so, with all this, again, the apostle would declare, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Far greater sacrifice. You know, every single family in the nation of of, uh, Israel had to sacrifice that lamb. Jesus is this one lamb. That lamb kept the people safe from, of course, that plague. Jesus... Sacrifice keeps his people safe from judgment for all time. Jesus was this once for all sacrifice. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus is the Passover's reality. Can I call you this morning to trust him? Trust him to keep you safe from judgment. Trust him to set you free from slavery. You see, the people, uh, God provided this way to be safe. He said, this is what you have to do. And yet the people had to do it. They had to take hold of the promise that actually if they were going to do this, if they were going to um, be safe from the judgment and set free, well, they had to paint that blood over the doorframe. And in the same way, we are called to believe in Jesus, to trust in him. He's provided that way. We need to take that response, believing that promise that he will indeed keep you safe. How about the Passover feast? So the Passover, we've seen it in its first case, we've seen the fulfillments. Well, how about the feast, this this annual celebrating and its significance to us? Well, again, we've said before, it's so important that it started the year for God's people. What I found interesting just reading through Exodus 12 is you see that it is so important that this annual celebration was instituted even before they'd done it the first time. Even before they'd done it, it wasn't, okay, kill the land, do all that stuff. Oh, yeah, this would be a good idea to remember and celebrate this every year. Even before it's instituted for the first time. Moses doesn't tell people to do anything with the land until verse 21. And before that, twice God has told Moses that the people are going to celebrate this. It was clearly very important to God that the people hold this feast every year. Why? What was the significance of doing so? 
Now, if you're on your sheets, uh, just cross out the first two. We're going to save those to next week. But here, let's see the significance of this uh, annual celebrating. Have a look at verse 14. This day... Actually, sorry, just before I read that, there's one thing I will flag up, sorry, from the first two points I mentioned. Just remember that uh, these feasts were a gathering, a holy convocation, a gathering of the people, a time when either in their families or in Jerusalem as a whole, the people were to get together. (coughs) And now let's look at verse 14, what they were to do when they got together. Verse 14, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord, Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So you see first there is it was a memorial day. That's I don't think a word that we tend to use much, a kind of memorial day. I mean, if we're living in America though, that they have a memorial day each year when they remember um, uh, those who've lost their lives in conflict, I guess a little bit as we would call a remembrance day. This was a day for remembering, remembering the Passover. As they ate that lamb spiced with bitter herbs, they remembered this bitter slavery that they were in in Egypt. But not just remembering the slavery, they remembered that great rescue, being safe from judgment because that lamb had died and being set free from that bitter slavery. And this remembering would go on throughout generations, generation to generation. And it gave the people an opportunity to to teach their children that they too would go on remembering. So verse 25. And when you come to the land, that's the promised land, that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over our houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed down their heads and worshipped. See, this Passover celebration was a time of remembering for all the people when God kept, his, kept them safe from judgments and set them free from slavery. It was a time for remembering. It was also a time for celebrating Verse 14, again, um, uh, the word comes up twice in verse 14, you shall keep this, you shall keep this. But I think that word keep lacks a bit of the emotion behind it. I looked at about 20 translations uh, in the end of this verse, um, and far more of them go for you shall celebrate it, which I think captures it better, like the NIV. For generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord's. This was a time of joyful remembrance, of a gathering, of a party, celebrating what God had done in the shedding of that lamb. How about us? We're we going to, it's not coming up fairly soon, is it? a month or so, we're we going to celebrate the Passover? Well, no, because Jesus is the substance, the reality of it. And yet, Joining together, gathering together as his people, remembering and celebrating the sacrificial lamb. That's that's what we do every Sunday. 
every Sunday we need to remember because we forget. We need to celebrate because we forget how great it is. Every Sunday in one sense we gather together as his people to remember and celebrate his work. But more, more than that, we don't actually have to wander too far, wander too hard to see how it applies to us. You see, at the Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples just before his death, at that Passover meal, what did he do at the end of it? He took the bread and broke it. He took the cup and gave it to his disciples and said, eat, drink, do this in remembrance of me. He's given us the Lord's Supper to enjoy. When we take bread and we take wine to remember Jesus' great sacrifice, how he keeps us safe from judgment, how he sets free from slavery. Now, if I planned much better, which if I planned any better, we would be celebrating the Lord's Supper today rather than last week. I'm sorry I didn't. But again, next time we do have it, which will be at Easter. But the next time we do have the Lord's Supper, <coughs> the point of doing so is to remind us to remind us of his great saving work and to celebrate it together. So there's the first. There's our first annual festival, the Passover. That great time to celebrate the Lamb who makes his people safe from judgment and sets free from slavery. And each week we're going to look at another one of these festivals to see how wonderfully... Jesus is the reality, the substance that is so wonderful for us, even thousands of years later. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this Passover lamb. We now bow our heads and we worship that you've provided that lamb to keep us safe from judgment. You've provided the lamb whereby you set your people free from slavery. And Father, please would you help us to remember, to celebrate. So often things become too familiar. Perhaps particularly in these next weeks as we look at these feasts, please give us a freshness and an increasing delight in Jesus and his great saving work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.